Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. So we are going to be continuing in our study of Mark's Gospel. We have actually this week and next, and then we'll be taking a short break for Advent. For those who've been tracking with us, you will be shocked that today we are going to cover 13 verses of Mark's Gospel. 13, not one or two, but 13. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. It'll be up on the screen. It's in your booklets, and you can follow along in your Bibles. So hear now the word of the living God. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now this passage that I just read is pretty amazing because actually even without the last couple of verses, this is one day in the life of Jesus. I was initially thinking about doing a little uh, nod to the Beatles and calling this a day in the life, but I, didn't, uh, I decided not to do that. We're going to look at it as really Jesus' authority, but it is all about one day in Jesus' life. So it's a really amazing passage. And secondly, it's amazing because unlike many Bible passages, we have a lot of archaeological discoveries regarding this specific passage. So I'm going to put a picture up here on the screen this is actually a picture. This is in the 1970s because unfortunately we've built buildings on top of these. But the arrow you can see where it looks kind of like a hexagon, that's an old Christian church building, but beneath it all of those straight lines are actually what they believe and they're pretty certain was Peter's house. Okay? Because from the first century there are carvings and statements from Christians regarding that they were there to worship. They considered this one of the most important worship places they had, and it's Peter's house. And next to it is actually the synagogue. Again, the very top part is the synagogue from around the fourth century. It was one of the largest synagogues in the world at the time, but beneath it, they've recovered the ruins from the synagogue uh, at the time of Jesus. And so we'll, we'll look at one more picture on this. You can kind of see it from above, so the the kind of, you know, thing that looks like a stop sign there or whatever at the top is the, uh, the, the church building that was built, but beneath it, all those straight lines are Peter's house, and you can see virtually next door is the synagogue. And so everything we're reading about today happens in that one little spot right there. Now, if you go to Capernaum today, you're going to see something a little bit different because they've built a church building over it, and there's another um, uh, uh, synagogue that stands there. But... This is showing us where this all happened. So right in this spot, Jesus has a day that Mark records for us, 
And he tells us something that teaches us and shows us regarding Jesus' unique authority. Right here, the king is going to begin to display his authority in Capernaum. So let's dive in and talk about the king's authoritative teaching. We're going to see his authority in three areas in his teaching, in his dealing with uh, demonic forces, and his dealing with sickness. We're going to see Jesus' authority in all those. So we begin with his authoritative teaching. Now notice we're told right up front, they went to Capernaum. So in Mark 1, 16 to 20, we had seen where Jesus had called Peter and Andrew and uh, James and John, and now Mark just simply tells us they all of them go to the town of Capernaum. So Jesus and the two sets of brothers together. And what Mark doesn't tell us here, he just kind of alludes to it in Mark 2.1, is that Jesus has actually moved to Capernaum. He no longer lives in Nazareth. He actually lives in Capernaum. Now, how we know this is in Mark's gospel. In Mark 4.13, we're told at this same time, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then Matthew actually quotes out of Isaiah to point part of why Jesus did that. But he's telling us that was right after the uh, temptation time in the wilderness. Jesus preached a little bit in Nazareth, and then he left and went to Capernaum. And in Mark 2, 1, we're going to actually read, this is the very next uh, passage is coming up. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So he's actually moved to Capernaum now, and we're going to find out that this is his new base of ministry. Now Capernaum, just so you know, is about 20 miles from Nazareth. So you can see there, it's right on the sea. Th that little arrow represents 20 miles or so. So it's kind of like moving from Baltimore to Annapolis say something along those lines is what we're talking about here and it may be we're not certain did jesus move in with peter because peter had a rather large house uh we're going to see that his mother-in-law is there or he bought his own home but in either case jesus is apparently now living out of capernaum and it's going to be his base of operations for ministry so even when we come back to this after advent we're going to see jesus is doing a lot of stuff in the area of capernaum um, now, what is he doing specifically? Well, we're told, and this should not be a surprise, the very first thing we read he did in Capernaum is Jesus teaches in the synagogue on Sabbath. So notice here, we're told the, the NIV has when the Sabbath came, Jesus went in the synagogue. This shouldn't be a surprise if you've been tracking in this series. Mark actually says immediately Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Um, and that word immediately, the Greek word behind that, which gets translated a number of ways, but that word occurs five times in this passage. In verse 21, 23, 28, 29, and 30. Five times, Mark is using this to say, look, this is purposeful. Jesus is on the move. He has he is got a set, resolute purpose as to what he is doing. And the first set resolute thing that he is doing is, it is the Sabbath, so he goes to the synagogue. Now I mentioned, and I'm going to talk about this more in after hours, one of the things disciples do is they don't just learn information from their master, they also learn the character of their master and they learn the life rhythm of their master. Well, here's an example of life rhythm. Notice what Jesus does on the Sabbath. Mark just tells us it's the Sabbath, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching. Luke actually brings this out even a little more clearly. In Luke 4.16, Luke tells us this. He went to Nazareth. This is before he had even moved to Capernaum. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Luke wants to make sure that we understand this is nothing unusual. It's not as if the people were like, whoa, Jesus showed up at synagogue. He's always shown up at synagogue. If it's Sabbath, Jesus is in synagogue. One does not need to run around and say, geez, I can't find Jesus on the Sabbath. Everybody would say, well, it's obvious where Jesus is on the Sabbath. Go to the synagogue. That's where you will find him because that is his practice. It is his custom. He gathers with the people of God for worship each week. So Mark here is giving us a typical Sabbath day for Jesus. 
This is what it looks like. He's going to show us one day, but this could be repeated week after week after week because it is what Jesus did. And so we as disciples who need to learn from the uh, and imitate the life rhythm of our master, we need to learn from exactly what Jesus is doing here. Every week, what does Jesus do? He gathers with the people of God for worship. Now, he probably needed to because he's only the sinless, eternal son of God. So he probably has much more need for that than I do, right? As, don't miss this. As the sinless son of God, what did he do every Sabbath? You gather with the people of God for worship because it's commanded by God and because it's a necessity. I need it. The people need it, and so it is Jesus' life rhythm. Uh, and I'm going to go into this again more in after hours, but one of the amazing things is the synagogues, it's not like they're always the greatest place. We're about to see in just a moment what's going to be the first immediate reaction we read about to Jesus' teaching. A demon's going to shriek out. The amazing thing is Seven times in Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to be in a synagogue and there's going to be a demonized person. So, the bar's not real high. Jesus is gathering with them, not because synagogues are spirit-filled and everything is wonderful, but because that's where the people of God gather. And that's what I do. And there may even be demonized people there. And the leaders of the synagogue may even be fighting against me. There may be a struggle, but God's people gather for worship. It's what they do. And so sometimes today, and you may even run into this with believers, you know, well, I don't gather because I just can't find a spirit-filled church. Are they full of demonized people? Because it's a pretty low bar. I'm just saying. I think we can get over there aren't demons shrieking out every time we read the scripture. That's literally what's going on. And Jesus said, that's not the point. The point is, I gather with the people of God for worship. It's what God's people do. And again, I'll talk a little bit more about Jesus' life rhythm on this in After Hours, which will come out on Tuesday. You can check it out on the website or Facebook page, and I'll, I'll unpack that idea a little bit more. But notice what Jesus does when he goes to the synagogue. What is different from the time when he was young, before he just went and was part of the people worshiping. Now that he has begun his messianic ministry, he begins to authoritatively teach the word of God in the assembled um, gathering of God's people. So we read in verse 21, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Now this is not as unusual as it sounds. You may say, well, why were they letting Jesus teach? This was often done if there was a visiting rabbi or teacher, usually the, the synagogue would open up and say, hey, do you have a word to share? We see this both in Jesus' ministry and this Paul used this to great effect throughout the book of Acts. He showed up and they're like, brothers, do you have anything to say? Boy, do I have something to say. Yes. So they would jump in and they would actually take advantage of that idea. Now here we're not given the content, but again, we've seen it in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is clearly preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Mark's already told us what it is that Jesus teaches. But what's amazing here is Mark here says that Jesus began to teach. Mark uses the word teach, the verb, or teacher, the noun, the person who teaches, 35 times. 33 of those, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one teaching, or it's saying Jesus taught. You know, this is his, his teaching. One time it refers to the disciples, and one time it refers to the Old Testament. That's what it means to teach. So 33 of them are Jesus himself teaching. And this doesn't even include other words like preach, which is what was used in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, and is going to be used in Mark 1, 38. It is just, he, Mark is driving home, the teacher is Jesus. And Jesus is the teacher. In fact, that's how it's oftentimes used in the gospel, is that's what he's referred to, teacher, 
what do you say about this? Teacher, would you, you know, my, my son has got a, an evil spirit in him. Teacher, can you deal with it? So the, the, the identity that is used almost more than any other in the gospel of Mark for Jesus is teacher. He is a teacher of the word of God. And Mark is letting us know, so right up front here, that teaching the word of God is the central facet of Jesus's ministry. Jesus, we're going to see, performs miracles. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to drive out demons. But the most important, the foundational, the central, the most important facet of his ministry was to teach the word of God. And we're going to even come back to that next week where we're going to see Jesus leaves a place where they're wanting him to do more miracles. And he says, because I have to go and preach the word in all these places. This is why I was sent. I was sent to preach the word. It is the, the primary thing. And notice here how Jesus preaches the word because he is filled with this knowledge that that is the call he has from the Father. More than anything else is to be a proclaimer of the word of God. Notice how he does it in verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Or some of your versions will say scribes there. So Jesus is teaching, but there's something different about his teaching. And it's not just the content of what he teaches, it's even the way he teaches. He teaches with authority. So that people, I mean, this is, this is Mark recording, he's, this is his first sermon in Capernaum, and everybody is like, whoa! There is something different about what's going on here. And it's different than, again, the NIV translates as teachers of the law. Many versions will have scribes. Either one of those is fine. Uh, but this group were a highly respected group. So don't read this that the people were like, man, we've had these terrible teachers of the law. They thought the teachers of the law were something. If a teacher of the law walked down the road, you had to step over to the side and let him pass by. If you were holding a feast, the teachers of the law got the best seats at the feast. Uh, they were thought to be somebody. And in fact, they're going to be mentioned, however, this is, this is part of Mark telling us how much Jesus has got to undo. The scribes or teachers of the law are going to be mentioned 21 times in Mark's gospel. Most often, they're hanging out with the Pharisees. So somebody help me. Good thing or bad thing right off the bat? Okay? They're hanging out with, with this group that is against them. So they're, they're with the, the Pharisees and the chief priests. And out of 21 times they're mentioned in Mark's gospel, only one time is it in a positive light. In Mark 12, 28, there is a scribe who's asking Jesus about the greatest commandment and saying that Jesus has answered wisely. The only positive comment about these scribes and teachers of the law. In fact, they're going to be in constant conflict with Jesus, and they are in the end going to conspire to put him to death. So this is people whose entire job is that they write and they teach the word of God, and yet they miss the actual word of God when he shows up. Don't miss that that's going on. So right off, they're doing that. And notice Jesus is being separated out from them. And in part, this is happening because see what the scribes did is they spent most of their time, it'd be like me standing up here and instead of proclaiming the word of God, me saying, well, as scholar so-and-so said, and then of course scholar other so-and-so said, and there's an argument between them and they went back and forth on all this kind of stuff. Jesus stood up and proclaimed the word. He taught the word of God. We've actually seen this in the history of the church. One of the great recoveries at the time of the Reformation was many of the people preaching the scripture didn't even read the scripture. They read commentaries about commentaries about commentaries that eventually somewhere back along the line went back to scripture, but the guys were no longer even reading the word of God. Same thing is happening here. And Jesus comes in and cuts through all that and says, what you need is the word of God. Not the word of man, you need the word of God. And let me 
just say here, this is so important for us to grasp and to understand. The powerful, authoritative proclamation of the Word of God was the central facet of Jesus' ministry, and it must always be central in the life and ministry of every local church. It does not matter what else a church has. If they don't have the strong, authoritative proclamation of the Word of God, find somewhere else to spend your Sunday mornings. Be real clear. And, and in saying that, what I mean by that is the proclamation of the Word of God. It does not matter what I think. It does not matter what I like. I have my thoughts. I have my likes and dislikes. There's, I can give you opinions on all kinds of topics, and they're generally full of ignorance. Because it's not what I spend my time doing. A local congregation needs to have the authoritative proclamation of the Word of God. This is what God says, because I'm just opening up the Scripture. That's what we're doing. And if it doesn't do that, it's not following in the ways of Jesus. That is what he is primarily about. Now, the second thing that that leads to is then we see that the king exercises authority over demons. So notice the first thing that happens as Jesus is preaching is in verse 23. The NIV puts it, just then a man. Anybody want to guess what the word just then is actually? Immediately. So the picture is Jesus starts to preach and he's barely into it and immediately there is this reaction from a guy who is demonized. This demon cries out. Jesus' authoritative teaching of the Word of God provokes the demon, demonic spirits and powers to react. And in fact, the, the, the word here where it says uh, he cried out, you know, cried out in our language can, can be kind of a soft. No, it means he shouts. He was disruptive. The whole meeting kind of came to a stop and everybody turned around and looked to see what was going on. The, the evil spirit is being provoked by the preaching of the Word of God. It is not a whisper. It's not a polite interruption. It's not a teacher, I have a question. The spirit is provoked by the authoritative teaching of the Word of God. Now, the NIV here calls it an evil spirit, a man who's possessed with an evil spirit. The, the actual literal thing is an unclean spirit is what it is. It, it's, uh, the, the word is, is unclean spirit, which goes back to the Old Testament where things were clean or unclean and were you allowed. We're going to see, in fact, next week where Jesus heals a leper because the leper is unclean. So this is an unclean spirit. Mark's going to call demons that 11 times in his gospel. He's also going to refer to them as demons 13 times at the very end of this passage. He's talking about the same thing and his demons. So he just uses them interchangeably because when a demon is there, it has the effect of making us unclean, shutting us out of God's presence, and in fact, even bringing difficulty to be in the presence of other people. And we're going to run into them a lot particularly in the first half of the gospel. So the gospel is marked again as Jesus, anointed by the Spirit, is proclaiming the word of God. Who's he naturally going to come into conflict with? Satan and his forces. It's not surprising. We're going to see this over and over and over again. Everywhere Jesus goes with an authoritative proclamation, there's going to be a response. Now what's interesting here, what's kind of surprising in verse 24? What, what does the demon know? He knows who Jesus is. What's the question that humans keep asking in the Gospels about Jesus? Who is this guy? See, the demons know. And this is only the first time. We're actually going to run into it in Mark chapter 3. A demon is going to recognize and say, you're the son of God. In Mark chapter 5, the demon's going to cry out and say, you are the son of the most high God. Here the demon says, I know who you are. You are the holy one of God. So what's pretty amazing is while human beings, including even the disciples, are grappling with the question, who is this? We can't quite figure this out. The demon's like, oh, I know who it is. <laughs> I got full knowledge of who this is. 
This is the Holy One of God. This is the promised Messiah. This is superior authority that has come here. And even when he asks, he says, what do you have to do with us? That's a phrase that's most often used of conflict. Have you come here? Are you going to torture me? What are you trying to do with me, Jesus? I wasn't expecting this all of a sudden. And here you are walking in. And notice what Jesus does is he shows complete authority over the demons. Okay? If if this was a Hollywood movie, the music might build and everything happens and it's a one-punch fight. Whole thing is over quick. The demon is speaking out. And notice the first thing Jesus does is, what does he tell the demon? Be quiet. See, he didn't go to a lot of modern church growth seminars because we would market that. Even the demons know who we are. Jesus says, I don't care what the demons know. That they're, they're not a source that I'm going to use to build my name and what I'm here to do. So the first word out of his mouth is shut up. Stop talking. And amazingly, what happens? The demon's quiet. First sign that's going to shock everybody because people aren't used to this. In fact, what they usually do when exorcisms are done at the time, they're trying to get the demon to talk so they can find things out about him so they can figure out a weak spot to try and get him. That's how exorcisms were done. We've got all these manuals. Jesus, rather than trying to find out, says, shut up. I don't need to know anything else about you. And then secondly, um, Jesus simply commands the demon to come out, come out of him, and the evil spirit shakes the guy, he shrieks violently, and he comes out, which is, again, shocking to everyone, because usually these are long ordeals. There's all this stuff that goes on, and all of these incantations. I was actually reading this week, I didn't know this. One of the things that they would normally do is they would stick very smelly things under the person's nose, thinking it would be so unpleasant the demon would leave. I'm not sure why they thought that would work, but that was one of the things that they did. They had smelly stuff that they would use. They would use all these crazy ways to try and get a demon out. This is what people are used to. And Jesus simply says, out. And it's done. And so he is showing here that he has absolute authority. And so notice again, Mark brings back in verse 27 and 28, that we've already heard they were amazed at how Jesus taught. Now we're coming back to the same thing. In verse 27, they're so amazed, they ask each other, what is this, a new teaching? So notice, what's the first thing they go back to? The teaching. See, what I would say at this point is, what's this? He drove the demon out. But see, the first thing they recognize is, but it's something about his word. That's what provoked this. That's where the authority issues from. This guy teaches different than anything we've heard. And then he's backing it up. Because when the demon cried out, he even commands the demon. He gives orders to these unclean spirits and they obey him. And so the people are astounded. We've never heard teaching like this. We've never seen authority over evil spirits like this. And so as you can imagine, when they flooded out, number one, Jesus didn't do parking lot ministry. I will today. I'll chase everybody down. But Jesus, they flood out of the media. What do they immediately start doing? Telling everybody. I mean, they go home and somebody was sick and they didn't get to come to synagogue today. And they're like, boy, did you pick the wrong week to be sick and not be there? You should have seen what happened. I mean, first off, Jesus stood up and spoke, and this was like nothing I have ever heard of before. And then, oh my gosh, this demon screamed out, and he just told it to be quiet, commanded it, it was gone. It was the wildest meeting I've ever seen. I can't wait till next Sabbath. Okay, that's kind of, let's be honest, is that not what you would have done? That's exactly what we'd be doing, right? And that's, and that's what's going to happen here. And so Mark says, look, word starts to spread like wildfire. And he's talking a little bit into the future because one of the issues is it's the Sabbath day. They don't have phones. They don't have email. They can only go so far. But word about Jesus is going to spread rapidly. But the fact is, the people still don't understand who he is. They're like, what, what is this? We, we, we can't figure out. The demon knows what's going on. The people are still utterly confused as to who Jesus is and what he's doing. And we're going to come back next week and see how that continues to create problems for Jesus. They've got their agenda, which does not always line up with Jesus' agenda. 
So that's the second area. The third area is the king then uh, does authority over diseases. Remember, this is all in one Sabbath. So Jesus leaves the synagogue, as we saw. He walks just a few feet down the road, and he goes into Peter's house. And we read in verses 29 and 31, as soon as they left the synagogue, being Jesus and the four brothers, two sets of two brothers, they went uh, with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and helped her up. And the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So again, as soon as, let's guess again, what word is it? Immediately. I mean, again, Jesus has just done all of this. And you might think, hey, let's go get a burger and fries and just, you know, chill for a while. He's on mission still. He's authoritatively preached the word. He's authoritatively dealt with demons, but there is still sickness. So he immediately heads over to Peter's house, and when he gets there, he's told, hey, mom-in-law is here, and she is sick. Um, she's down sick with a fever. And so Jesus goes in. Now, now please remember, too, Peter's going to be Jesus' disciple. This means he's going to be off throughout the gospel traveling around. There's, there's a cost to Peter's family, to his wife, and actually now here we hear to his mother-in-law. Peter, unlike some church tradition wants to say, he's clearly married. He has a mother-in-law, and there's a cost to them. Well, Jesus comes under the roof, and there's little hints here you can almost picture, because remember, Peter's the one that gave Mark the information for this gospel. So in a day full of healings, we're going to read Jesus, you know, after the Sabbath is over, everybody in the town comes in that's sick. And then the next day Jesus has to leave and he's going to get to other towns and we're going to see all kinds of things. Why is there this one healing of a mother-in-law whose sickness does not seem to be nearly as big as the others? Because Peter's like, man, I remember. All this is going on and we went back to my house and he took time. He went in and he healed my mother-in-law there on the spot if you or i were the ones who jesus had done that for do you think see this is where i'd say look i'm getting to tell the story it's going to make it into the gospel because i remember this happened in my family this wasn't somebody else so peter brings it up and he tells and jesus goes in and once again notice there's not a long time thing jesus merely touches her raises her up off her sickbed, and she's fully healed. The point that she waited on them, she served them, is to show she's so well. She's not like, well, I'm kind of there, but geez. We all know what it's like, right? When you've had a fever, how do you feel afterwards? Yeah, yeah. I, guys, here's a tip. When your wife's had a fever, don't do this. <laughs> Unless you can fully heal her, don't say, hey, babe, how about if you get up and make something for me? The fever broke. You're going to be calling me for marriage counseling if you do, okay? So that this is to show, look, normally she'd be wiped out. But when Jesus touched her, she got up, and she was full of energy, and she went around and she waited on everybody. She served them. Mark then shows us this pattern continues even after the Sabbath. Because remember, everybody else, they've heard about it, but they can't travel. It's Sabbath day. But now, as soon as the Sabbath is over, we get this little denim. So we're now, by Jewish reckoning, we're into the next day. It's still in a 24-hour span of time, but the Sabbath ends, and it's the next day. And we're told that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. So notice it's after sunset, which means the Sabbath has ended, so people can bring them to Jesus for healing. We're going to be reading in Mark chapter 2 what happens when Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. It's going to cause problems. So we already know he's already done that, but nobody else knows he's done it yet. But it's, Mark's kind of giving us, you know, again, if you're watching the movie, you should say, ooh, this is going to cause problems later. I can see this is going to come back. Well, that's exactly what happened. So right after the Sabbath, everybody, because they're all still waiting and saying, well, on the Sabbath, we can't travel. We can't ask him to do this work of healing. So they wait until right after the Sabbath, after sunset, and they bring to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And here Mark actually uses the word demons, and they come to him because they've heard 
Some of them have seen Jesus at the synagogue and they went home and grabbed somebody and as soon as the Sabbath was over, they went over. Some of them knew somebody else, but word is spreading and everybody is showing up. And notice what happens. How many people come to Peter's house? I mean, like the whole town. You can't even get into the house. We're gonna see this kind of an issue over and over again. This is one of the problems. Everybody starts thronging to Jesus, but the problem is nothing can get done because everybody's thronging around him to try and do this. And it's duplicating exactly what had happened on the Sabbath. Notice what Mark records. Jesus heals the sick, and he drives out demons, and he doesn't let the demons speak. So those two aspects are identical. But I will ask you, what's missing? Teaching the Word of God. And we're going to see next week, Jesus is not happy about that. Okay, because if you look forward in the gospel, we're going to find out that night, what does he do? He gets up, he leaves, he goes off by himself to pray. And when the disciples are like, hey, the whole town's gathered around. You got to get down there and strike while the iron's hot. Jesus says, yeah, that's not why I came. I came to preach the word. So now we're going to have to go to some other towns <laughs> where I can get in and actually be able to preach the word because right now everything is such a hubbub here, can't even do it. So notice, though, Jesus is reduplicating, and Mark is driving home this point of the total sovereignty of Jesus. What Mark wants us to know from this day in the life is Jesus teaches with authority, he heals completely, and he exercises utter control over demonic spirits. So what does this mean for us? How do we apply this today here in Annapolis a couple thousand years later. There's one question and we will come to the Lord's table together. And the question's pretty simple. Do I see, and by see, I mean see with my mind and embrace with my heart. Do I see, do I know, do I understand the sovereignty of Jesus? See, Mark gives us one day in a ministry that's three and a half years long, a life that's over 33 years long. But he picks this one day and he does it because he's saying, I want you to see Jesus is fully sovereign. He, he is authoritative in his teaching. He has control over demons and he has power over sickness. When I read this passage, I think of the hymn. There's a hymn that says, Jesus doeth all things well. That, that could be Mark's heading to this passage. Jesus doeth all things well. Other people are fumbling and bumbling trying to teach the scripture. He teaches it with authority. Other people have got all these crazy formulas they're trying to do to work with sticking smelly stuff under a guy's nose to try and deal with a demon. Jesus does it well with authority. And then other people have got all kinds of things they try to do to handle sickness. Jesus speaks a word authoritatively and heals. He does everything well. And what this is meant to do for you and I as disciples is to encourage us, what is outside the authority of Jesus Christ? Let me hear you. What is outside the authority of Jesus Christ? Nothing, brothers and sisters. Now, let, let me be fully frank and honest, okay? The guy standing up here with the advanced degrees and studying the Bible, I know that, but I don't always live that. It's very easy for me to forget the utter authority of Jesus Christ. It's easy for me to confess with my mouth Jesus has authority and then in the depth of my heart live as if he does not by my fretting, by my worrying, by my taking other plans, by, by trying to work things around, I can, in practical terms, end up denying the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. But we want to be reminded here, we want to let Mark soak into us to remind us that whatever I may face, every one of us in here are facing a different thing, but whatever I may face, Jesus is sovereign over my circumstances, and he is never far from me. Never, ever am I far from the Son of God. Now, note here, these are all signs that Jesus is the Messiah. Later, he's going to send word back to John and say, well, look, look what's going on. 
I'm healing people, the word of God's being preached to the poor, all these things are happening. These are all signs that I'm the Messiah. Blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus is here giving his proof that he's the Messiah. So it's important to understand, can I demand Jesus do anything for me? I can't. I, I can't. There's no, you know, Lord, I demand is an oxymoronic sentence. Okay, it doesn't work that way. He demands. Okay, we can't do that, and we, we need to recognize that. But with that being said, with that caveat, what I want to drive home is, but the Lord wants us to know he is willing, he does hear, he is open to respond, and he still has authority in whatever you and I face. Jesus has the authority to speak to you, to free you, and to heal you. He absolutely does. And so one of the things that God wants to work in our lives through the sufferings and difficulties that we face is that we would draw near to him in faith, looking to Jesus for his word, his deliverance, and his healing. Because it's easy to, again, realize, you know, I've just went through, you may hear it a little bit in my voice, I've been sick this week. And true confessions from your, one of your elders here. Guess what is not my first thought when I start getting sick? All right, let, let's be honest. What, what, what is usually the first thing we think about doing when we get sick? I got to reach for the DayQuil, right? Is there anything wrong with DayQuil? Yes, you're evil if you use it. No, I'm just kidding, okay? There's nothing wrong with DayQuil, but you know what? Why don't I turn to Christ? Because one thing is certain, Jesus wants me to seek him. Whether in my sickness, my affliction, my feeling abandoned, he wants me to turn to him. But see, it's so easy when I'm sick to look to DayQuil, when I am tortured and struggling with something to try and find somebody else to help when I'm feeling abandoned to Netflix my way through the night. All of which is the wrong way. The Lord wants me to turn to him and he wants me to cry out to him. We're going to see again this coming week you know, where there's the leper that comes in and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Do, do we have that response? Do we believe that? Do we cry out with that? And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be coming to the table of the king. And I want you to think for a moment. We're taking this time each week as we come to the Lord's table. What is the area that you want the king to exercise his authority? What is the area where you may be looking to something else? Okay? That that we would come and we're going to ask the Lord to meet us in that area. It might be healing. It might be a sin I've been struggling with. It might be that I'm feeling distant from the Lord. It may be that I'm facing this situation and I just feel like I know Jesus is sovereign, but somehow this slipped outside of his control. What is that thing? You know what it is. It's going to be different for every one of us. And we're going to ask the Lord to speak to us, to deliver us, to heal us, to work in whatever way is necessary. And we're going to be here to receive from the sovereign king. His word is no less authoritative. His command is no less strong to break the power of the enemy. His touch is no less healing than it was on this day that was recorded from a couple thousand years ago. So what we're going to do is if you can stand with me, we're going to begin by corporately reading and confessing a passage together. This is out of Hebrews chapter 2. So uh, Dan, if you can go ahead and bring it up. We're going to just read through this together. This is Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. And this could be a description of what Jesus was doing on that day. We've seen a day in the life. You and I are living a day in our own life. And I want us to hear as we recite God's word together why Jesus came and what his ministry is for you 
and for me. So let's read God's word together. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You can go ahead and be seated. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to receive that word that we just heard. Jesus has come to set you free. He has come to set me free. To break whatever fear, whatever grip Satan wants to hold on you and me. Body, soul, spirit, mind, will, emotions. So I want to encourage you now, as we come to the Lord's table, to lay that before him and ask the Lord to meet you in that spot. I remind you, you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church for our visitors. You don't have to be a member of our congregation to participate uh, in the Lord's table with us. It is his table. You do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that you recognize you can no more save yourself than a leper can cleanse his skin, than a dead man can raise himself. You are utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ, which is a great place to be. If you believe that and you know that and you have confessed that, then you are welcome here to the table with us. If you don't, then you should let it pass because this is a meal for those who profess that Jesus Christ is their only hope of salvation. So brothers and sisters, what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he Take just a moment. If there's any sin that the Lord has revealed, confess it. If there is a specific area that the Lord is bringing to mind, prepare and ask the Lord to meet you here at his table. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Lord Jesus, you took our flesh to yourself and walked upon this earth to destroy the devil's work. And you did this by proclaiming the word of God, refuting error and teaching truth. By casting out demons, freeing people from their tyranny and torture, and by healing the sick with the mere touch of your hands. And Lord, in doing this, you restored us completely, bringing freedom and healing to body and soul, mind, will, and emotions. And Lord, after you did all of this wonderful work, your body was broken, not in defeat, but to secure salvation for us. Lord, we confess all you have done for us, and we give you thanks for your body through which you have worked salvation for us. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Lord Jesus, after freeing people during the time of your ministry, you were rejected 
and you were condemned by those you had come to save to die upon the cross. This seemed to be a moment of utter despair and defeat. But in reality, at that very moment, you were disarming and publicly defeating Satan and his kingdom. For by your death, you secured our salvation, freeing us from the penalty of sin, unshackling us from Satan's power, and setting us free from the power and fear of death. Lord, we confess all you have done for us, and we give you thanks for your blood which was shed to seal God's covenant with us and through which we enjoy all these blessings. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. And I encourage you to join me as I cry out to our God in prayer for the ways he is working in us. Our Father God, We thank you for the great salvation worked for us by Jesus and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we receive your work fresh and anew today. Lord, you see and you know our deepest needs. So now, O God, speak to us to quiet, Renew and shape our minds. O God, shatter the power of sin and Satan where they have enslaved us. O our God, touch us to bring healing to body and spirit, to mind, will, and emotions. Lord, we humbly are asking as your covenant people that you would do these things. And Lord, by your grace, we vow and declare now that more than anything, we long to receive your word and to walk in your ways, to follow after you as your disciples. Lord, we love you, not for what you will do for us, but simply for who you are. Hear and answer our prayer. For, Lord, it arises from grateful hearts. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus, our sovereign King, and God's people say, Amen. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.